Um, but I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, I've actually taught a class similar to this uh, last year to the youth group, um, albeit in 10 weeks instead of uh, five or six. So we're scrunching in a lot of material uh, into a short period of time, but we'll get through it. We will do it. Uh, so he, he asked me to lay a foundation for us in these first couple of sessions, uh, and so we are gonna, we're going to do that. Uh, and we're not going to be exhausting everything there is to say about these things. Obviously, we do have a limited time, uh, but we'll do our best to hit the mountain peaks. Uh, I do have a handout available here. If I could have a couple of quick-footed men that could help pass these out, that would be really helpful. I should have had them in the back. Thank you. I don't know um, how detailed of a handout Michael usually provides you, but mine is not very detailed, so you have lots of room there to take your own notes. I am a proponent of, of, uh, of, of taking your own notes. And we're not going to turn in our Bibles to every single passage that's uh, in the notes. Uh, there would be no way in the world we'd be able to get through everything if, if we turned in our Bibles to every single passage. So I might have you turn to one uh, scripture per point, and I'll, I'll read the rest of them. Uh, but all the references are there for your, for your time in the Word later. And it's also not an exhaustive list of Scripture. It's just a selection, as we're going to see in this class. We have an infinite God, and His truth is infinite. So uh, this is just a selection of Scripture. So you might think of other passages that go with some of the things we're talking about, and that is, that is fantastic. Uh, this is just a selection. So this evening, we're going to be starting with... Um, Three topics, uh, the existence of God, the knowability of God, which is how much of God can we know, and then, Lord willing, we're going to start examining some attributes of God, so that'll be fun. And and I want to begin this evening with the existence of God. Now, there are some uh, systematic theology texts that sadly leave this out, the existence of God. There, There are some who believe that this is an unnecessary uh, discussion when establishing a doctrine of God, and I think that's, that's kind of a shame, uh, because the Scripture really does have a lot to say um, about the existence of God, though it might not be in the way uh, you might initially think, and we're going to see that um, in just a second. But I want to begin uh, by reading a formal argument for the existence of God. It's actually a formal argument for hope, in the existing God. And uh, this, I I copied this directly out of a major theological text from a theologian probably most of you are familiar with. And after hearing this argument, you're all going to be convinced that there is a God, and you'll all be converted too, I, I promise you. So here is the argument. Here's how it goes. We are convinced that an epistemology established upon naked empiricism is doomed to travel the road to the graveyard of Hume. If the Latin axiom, nihil est in intellectu quad non furit in sensu, no idea if I said that right, if that axiom is accepted, in an absolute sense, skepticism is unavoidable. That is, if all, all prioris, either of principles or abilities or categories, are excluded, we see no way to progress beyond an inchoate blob of sensations. And here's, here's the conclusion that's, that's drawn from, from this argument. Not a single datum can be discovered without an a priori making discrimination and individuation possible. 
boom, God exists, let's close in prayer, right? We're done here. All joking aside, um, I, I can't even comprehend that. I don't even know what that's trying to say. I, I only know it's an argument for hope in the existing God because the author said that's what he's trying to argue through that. And it might surprise you, but the scripture actually does not present to us formal arguments for the existence of God, formal arguments such as this. Now, that was an extreme example I read you, and this isn't to say that an argument like this wouldn't be helpful for a believer somewhere who's able to follow that kind of metaphysical argumentation. But the point is, within the pages of Scripture, you're really not going to find propositions uh, like, you know, if this, then this about God. You're not going to find propositions about God's existence. What you find are assertions about his existence. What you find are presuppositions, presumptions, like you already know that God exists. And we finished bibliology recently, and you'll remember there are two types of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. You'll remember that general revelation is what we know generally, usually through creation or through the conscience, And special revelation is what God has told us in his word, specifically, hence, special revelation. And the scripture doesn't present formal arguments for God's existence, and so I'm not going to do that either. What I do want to do is give you just a few considerations regarding the existence of God from the Bible. Two of them uh, being through what the Bible says about general revelation, and one through special revelation. So the first consideration about God's existence is that the Scripture leaves us without excuse regarding this. The Scripture leaves us without excuse. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. So the Scripture really leaves us without excuse when it comes to the existence of God, and it tells us as much. And this is a major purpose of general revelation to point people to the reality of the Creator. In the Old Testament specifically, creation pointing people to the glory and magnificence of a Creator, to show you on a daily basis the reality of God, the reality that there is, there is a Creator. Romans 1, starting in verse 19, What can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So scripture tells us that what can be known about the creator, namely his power and his divinity, is evident. It's clearly seen since the creation of the world. Creation testifies to the existence of a creator, and as a result, people are without excuse. Listen to Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech, night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard, but their message has gone out to all the earth. Modern astronomers in the European Space Agency recently estimate that 
There are 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. That's about 10 to the 12th power number of stars. A lot of stars. Nearly innumerable. And a great number of these stars, of course, you remember from basic science class in school, that those stars have solar systems and have individual planets. There are millions of other galaxies. There are occurrences in space that can that we can see with our technology, but we simply know nothing about. So what can we merely see with our feeble technology? The magnificence of the sun. The power of black holes from which even light cannot escape its pull. The beauty, the grandeur, the splendor of nebulas. The heavens declare the glory of of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. They communicate this day after day, night after night. They don't talk. They don't have words. They don't have a voice. But their message is crystal clear. They scream to us, God, God, God. What can be known about God apart from the Bible is evident. Now that's on a macro scale of grandeur. What about on the micro? What about on the small scale? What about the microscopic? Psalm 139, verse 13, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know this very well. Sometimes we focus on the fearfully and wonderfully made, and we forget that the psalmist said, I know this very well. The the psalmist didn't need a microscope in order to glorify the Lord. He he, he sees God's glory, and in this psalm, he, he sees it in his created body. We do have microscopes, so what are some things that we can see and observe? Have you ever thought about how many bodily processes you undergo on a daily basis? Have you ever thought about how you're able to hear? I find this fascinating. Sound waves enter your outer ear, travel through the ear canal and to the eardrum, and the eardrum vibrates from the incoming sound waves and sends these vibrations to three tiny bones in the middle ear. These bones in the middle ear amplify the sound vibrations and send them to a part called the cochlea, which is a a snail-shaped structure filled with fluid inside the inner ear, and an elastic partition runs from the beginning to the end of this snail-shaped structure, splitting it into an upper and a lower part. This partition is called the basilar membrane because it serves as the base or the ground floor on which all of these key hearing structures sit. And the sound uh, vibrations cause the fluid inside this snail-shaped structure to ripple and then send a traveling wave which forms along the basilar membrane Little hair cells, sensory cells, sit on top of the basilar membrane and they ride the wave. And the hair cells near the wide end of the snail-shaped structure detect higher-pitched sound, like a baby crying. And the, uh, uh, the, the cells near the wide end of the snail-shaped structure detect lower-pitched sounds, like a big dog that barks from your neighbor's house. And as the hair cells move up and down, smaller microscopic projections perch on top of the hair cells, and they bump around and they bend, and the bumping and bending causes pore-like channels, which are at the tips of these microscopic projections, to open. When that happens, chemicals rush into the cells, creating an electrical signal. Then the auditory nerve in your ear carries this electrical signal to the brain, which turns it into a sound, 
that you recognize and understand. That happens. It's happening right now every time I'm, I'm speaking to you. That's unimaginable. I mean, I can't even comprehend what I just read to you. It's, it's so complex. People go to medical school for years to just understand the, the human ear. It's incredible. That's just one of the processes your body completes on a daily basis. It's arranged, it's ordered, and it's maintained. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, he knows very well what's going on. He knows very well that life screams, God, God, God. What can be known about God apart from the Bible is evident. Now, I hope you remain in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Now, Pastor Brian is doing a Romans exposition, so I'm not going to take anything from that because he preached far better than I could. But Romans 1 is crystal clear. There is an internal censorship of what is evident. A known and seen reality is being intentionally suppressed. Not only this, here in Romans 1, it's traded. It's exchanged. The glory of God exchanged for images. I'm a student of the Word, uh, but I'm also a student of history. I love history. I love to read about ancient peoples and ancient cultures and how they functioned. And to my knowledge, there are no atheist or truly secular ancient peoples. If there were, I would love to know about them. They were, they were all pagan, weren't they? They created false religion and false gods. Evidence of a higher power was around them day and night. And they knew that and they saw that. They created pantheons of false deities, which had mythologies. Or they were animistic and worshipped the wind and the rain and the earth. This is why we need special revelation. We know there is a creator just by looking at creation, but we do not know who the creator is just by looking at creation. And this exchange of the glory of God for images happens today in our so-called secular enlightened society. You know this. I don't have to prove that to you. You know, it's interesting. A lot of secular folks like to talk about Mother Earth, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's, that's not atheism. I would submit to you that's not even secularism. That's, that's a type of neo-pagan animism, a worship of the earth. Or, or people have made themselves into God, lowercase g. Even with God's special revelation wildly available, there is an intentional exchange, a trading of it. They cannot escape the reality of God, even if they want to, so they replace him with something else, usually that's more suited to their sin. But the reality is Scripture just leaves us without excuse regarding the existence of God. What can be known about the Creator God is evident through nature, but we cannot know who the Creator God is from what is seen in nature. Another consideration about the existence of God is that the Scripture presumes that we are already aware of Him. Scripture presumes that we are already aware 
of him. You can see this, I think, clearly in some of the language of the Psalms. Turn to Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10. Even if you don't know the God of the Bible specifically, Scripture reveals to us you are inherently aware of a standard-setting God. For example, even outside of the Bible, mankind knows some sense of right and wrong. There is a compass there, even if it's badly calibrated. There still is a compass of right and wrong. You have a conscience, even if it's not informed. You also see creation with your eyes, like we we just looked at. It, It testifies to a creator. You were built to worship, and you're going to worship something. This is why we are so attracted to idols, and we obsess over false gods. We give to idols what we were made to give God. You were made to direct worship at something. And it is foolish to deny such a reality, the scripture says. Listen to Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, God does not exist. Sounds a lot like Romans 1, doesn't it? The Bible assumes, you know in your heart, There is a standard-setting God, and the person that rejects this is called a fool. This is a person who rejects reality. Rejecting the existence of God is rejecting reality itself. It's a suppression of a truth that is known. And rejecting the reality of God carries immense consequences, not just for yourself, but for others, too. It isn't just foolish, but it leads to terrible wickedness. Look at Psalm 10. You should be turned there. Psalm 10, verse 3. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, so it's the same person, in all his scheming, the wicked arrogantly thinks there is no accountability since God does not exist. Rejecting the existence of of a standard-setting God leads to evil deeds. I mean, if, if there's no God, then there's no accountability. Morality is just arbitrary. This creates a, a world where a man can be a woman. It creates a, a, a world of using and abusing people for your own selfish financial gain. This, this creates a, a culture of just doing what is right in your own eyes, and in yourself, you're justified in that. I mean, submitting to the reality that God is really means everything. And, and there's actually kind of a formula here in Psalm 10. You'll notice it. First, there's this cursing and despising, disdain or hatred of the Lord that comes first. Then, it moves into this scheming and pride-filled reasoning which finally concludes there is no God. That's the conclusion. There is no God is not the first position that this particular wicked person has. No one ever just immediately arrives at that conclusion that God does not exist. Many, sadly, first despise the Lord for one reason or another. And and, and a lot of times it's because he restricts their sin. And the heart wants what the heart wants. We are pointed to the reality of a standard-setting God, in part because of the presence of our conscience. But your conscience only gets you so far. The Apostle Paul speaks of the conscience a lot in 1 Corinthians. He 
speaks of a good conscience, but he also speaks of a conscience that's seared or weak or even defiled in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 8 is just one example of this. Paul is speaking about the the one true God and the Lord Jesus Christ and then says in verse 7, However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some of them have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. The point is that the conscience is imperfect, especially when not trained under the Scripture. And it really tells you nothing about God specifically. So Scripture presumes that we have an inherent awareness of a standard-setting God But we cannot know who the standard-setting God is just from this inherent awareness of morality, just from the conscience. We can't know who he is. A non-calibrated conscience certainly does not tell us who God is. We need the Scripture for that. We need special revelation to calibrate our understanding of God. We need God's help to know him truly. Which brings us to the the final consideration about this, and it is that God has revealed himself in his word. God has revealed himself in his word. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We are not left to deduce, like Sherlock Holmes, the character of God. God does not leave us to guess about who he is. God doesn't leave us to just listen to the wind and try to figure this out. He's told us who he is. I mean, everyone in this room could recite Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first sentence of the first book of the Pentateuch declares that God is. Not only this, but God is the subject of the first sentence of the first book of the Bible. The Bible is about God and revealing God. Wide swaths of of modern evangelicalism in the West seem to think that the Bible is about them, like about man. It's not. The Bible is about God and us getting to know the Lord. Exodus 3, verse 6. The Lord said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And down in verse 13, then Moses asked God, if If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be known in every generation. So the scripture declares, asserts that God exists and presumes that you already know this fact. But not only this, it declares who the God is who exists. God has revealed himself. He's not some abstract force that just assembles the universe. He's not some just abstract force that, that lists off a bunch of rules to follow. No. God has an identity. His covenant name is Yahweh. This is how he is to be known. And we need the Bible to know God. 
You will not know God apart from the Bible. You will not know God apart from Scripture. General revelation, creation, the conscience, and also human reason, it just will not get you there. It just won't. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. The world did not know God through wisdom, but God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Unredeemed human wisdom does not lead you to the correct God. Certainly not salvation through Christ, like in 1 Corinthians 1. Unredeemed thinking always turns you inward, not upward. I warn the youth group fairly often to be very wary of any kind of counsel that tells you to go out into the proverbial fields and empty your mind and listen for God. That is a recipe to get God perfectly wrong. We need the scripture to know God. We need special revelation to set us straight. We need God's help to know him. So we turn to the scripture. He's given us sufficient help. The one true God can be known. And he is known in the scripture. So at this point, I think we need to ask the question, how much of God can we know? How much of God can we know? And I think there's, there's two important implications for this, just briefly about the, the knowability of God. The first is that the scripture is clear. We can't fully understand God. So how much of God can we know? We, we can't fully understand God. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147, verse 5. Our Lord is great, vast in power, and his understanding is infinite. Psalm 139, verse 6. This extraordinary knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I am unable to attain it. We can't fully know everything there is to know about God. We'll look at, maybe tonight, the fact that God is infinite. We are not. His understanding is infinite. Ours is not. An infinite God is far bigger than our finite minds can contain. We also can't comprehend everything. We can't fully wrap our minds around who God is at times. Like I said, uh, in a little bit, we're going to start examining some of the mountain peaks of God's attributes. We're going to briefly look at God's eternality. We'll see in Scripture that He has always been from eternity past, and we might get a headache trying to comprehend that. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? But this is actually quite a good thing for us in this life, that we can't fully know God. This means we'll never, ever run out of things to learn about the Lord. You will never deplete the scripture of its truth. We ought to never tire in delighting in the discovery of of more of God and, and knowing him more and his glory And this helps sustain your spiritual life, knowing and delighting in God more and more. I can tell you one of the blessings 
of being a, a younger Christian is watching older Christians continue to grow in their knowledge of God. To see folks of retirement age not retire from the truth, not retire from learning and knowing about God, it's such an encouragement to my soul to see older believers just continuing to mine Scripture and just marveling at the glory of God. What a blessing that is to see that. We'll never run out as long as we live. We'll never run out of things to to know about God. So we can't fully understand God, but we can truly know God. We can truly know God. Turn to to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. The Bible is sufficient. Michael uh, taught on that, Michael Laurie. The Bible is sufficient, sufficiency of Scripture, major, major doctrine. What God wants us to know about him, he's told us in his word. We don't go outside the Bible to know God truly, and we ought not to. We stay within the bounds of special revelation. Even though we can't know all of God exhaustively, all that Scripture tells us about God is completely true, holistically. It is true to say, as a matter of fact, that God is the Creator, and that God is sovereign, that God is providential over your life, and so on and so on, even if we don't know every possible aspect of those things. We have true knowledge of God through the Scripture, even if it's not completely exhaustive. You know, we can get to know things about God, but more significantly, through special revelation, we can get to know God himself. We can know who he is. You can know things about someone without knowing them. It's one thing for me to say, I know that my wife Ellie has blonde hair. It would be another thing entirely for me to say, I know Ellie. See the difference there? Me knowing her would imply that I have spent time with her. I have intentionally gotten to know her. I have conversed with her. I've talked to her. I've listened to her. The same is true with getting to know God. We have everything we need for this in the Scripture. Nothing for life and godliness is left out of the Bible, including knowing who God is. Knowing God is not only possible, but it's of vital importance. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. This is what the Lord says. The wise man must not boast in his wisdom. The strong man must not boast in his strength. The wealthy man must not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts ought to boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Here, God says that the source of our joy and sense of importance ought to come not from our things or our own self, but from knowing the Lord. We shouldn't boast in ourselves or in our possessions, but we ought to delight in knowing God. The New Testament also places emphasis on the value and importance of knowing God as well. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, 
that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I mean, we have a far greater privilege than just just knowing facts about God. I mean, facts don't get you anywhere. (laughs) Relationship does. I mean, this is one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life, one of the greatest blessings of Christ, that he opens the relational door to God. We can truly know him. And like Lance told us last week at the Truth and Life Conference on Sunday, being clear on who God is helps you in times of trouble, and it makes you useful to others who are going through times of trouble. So a biblical doctrine of God is of the utmost importance, utmost importance. We must know who God is. And so that's what we strive to do in this class. And we're going to move on to some of the attributes of God. And we're, we're only going to scratch the surface on who, who God is. Like we said, you, you can spend a lifetime getting to know God. So we're striving for the mountain peaks in this class, the mountain peaks. And there are, there's two types of attributes that we'll examine. We'll start with uh, incommunicable attributes and then move on to communicable attributes. Incommunicable simply means that we typically cannot be like God in these ways. God doesn't really share these attributes with us. If we are able to emulate God in these ways, it's, it's on a very minuscule scale. But by and large, he is separate from us in these ways. Communicable is the opposite of that. God does share them with us. We are able to emulate God in these ways. And in fact, Scripture calls us to do that. So that's part of sanctification, right? Becoming like the Lord. We are, we are to be like him in, in the ways that we can. We are made in the image of God, and therefore we are able to emulate his character in certain ways, communicable attributes. We'll, we'll only get to a, a couple of attributes tonight, and we'll spend the entire class next week on, on God's attributes. And we're going to begin with those attributes that we would consider incommunicable, ways that we are not like God. Because I think it's important for us to establish that we are not God, <laughs> and God is not us, right? So we're going to be looking at five total mountain peak incommunicable attributes of God. Five mountain peak incommunicable attributes of God. There's a lot we could say, a lot we could say about these. And so we are striving for the mountaintops, the mountain peaks here. It's important to note here, too, um, that the Scripture doesn't do a whole lot of systematizing about these things. We start with the Scripture, and then we do our best to systematize theology in a, in a helpful way that's accurate and honoring to the Lord and His Word. And so some of these attributes we'll, we'll look at tonight and, and next week, they could vacillate between incommunicable and communicable, maybe. Some authors or theologians or other faithful folks might classify these differently than what I've done, and that's okay as long as faithfulness to Scripture is there. They might add more attributes than what we talk about, or they might add less. They might take some away, and that's okay too, I suppose, as as long as there's faithfulness to Scripture. We're flying over the mountaintops, remember. And our goal is not to master a system, is it? 
Our goal is to be mastered by the truth. Something I tell the teens as well is we always start with the scripture. We never start with the system. We go to God's word first, and then we build our system. So we're, so we're going to look at the scripture. So the first mountain peak, incommunicable attribute of God we will examine is that God is independent. God is independent. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And here's how we'll tackle these attributes. So we'll look in the scripture at a few passages. Then we will briefly define the attribute after we look in the scripture. And then we'll have a a practical implication for us. Because I don't want this to be an academic exercise. I want this to be something that is helpful to your personal life. This is applicable. Doctrine informs how you live. So we're going to go there too. So we're starting with God's independence. Sometimes this is called the doctrine of God's self-existence. Self-existence. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Acts 17 is probably my favorite passage regarding God's independence because there's a bit of sarcasm from Luke in this passage, and I love it. The God who made the world and everything in it, you know, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't need to live in little homes or huts or shrines like the false idols do. You don't bring him little offerings because he's hungry. You know, you don't serve him with your hands to keep him alive and keep him happy as though he needed that. Rather, he's the one that gives you life and breath and all things. Great. He is the one who gives life. He does not have any needs from created things. Hopefully, that's not something novel to you. Hopefully, you know that already. He doesn't need air to breathe so he can live. He doesn't need food or water to keep him alive. He doesn't need gravity to keep him on the ground. He does not need an HVAC technician to repair his heater in the winter when it gets cold. He doesn't need a great glass of sweet tea to keep him cool in the summer, nor does God need man. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He is completely independent and self-existent in of himself. God does not need any part of creation in order to exist, to live, to be satisfied, or for any other reason. God is not dependent upon his creation. Rather, he is the one in whom his creation is dependent. He is not only the creator, but he maintains creation. The order that he has set, he maintains that order. I mean, we could spend an entire class just on God as the creator and how he interacts with his creation. We could do that. We could spend an hour talking about that. We need him. He does not need us. We do not live without the Lord keeping all this together. God needs nothing from any part of creation because it's all his anyway. Job 41.11, who confronted me that I should repay him? Everything under heaven belongs to me. No one has ever contributed to God anything that did not first come from him. We give nothing new or novel to God. 
You know, God did not create man because he was lonely. You know, we live in a world where I feel the need to say that publicly. <laughs> God, God did not make us because he was lonely. If that were true, then that would mean God has needs from creation. It would mean that God would have needed to create man in order to be completely happy or fulfilled in his personal existence. It's the kind of thing you see in, in, in children's books that are lacking in the theology department. God wasn't lonely without man. The scripture testifies that God has no needs from you or anything else. Your worship doesn't sustain him, doesn't give him life like the ancient Greeks thought of Zeus. He is completely self-existent. John 17, 5, Christ says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. God was completely self-existent and self-sufficient before creation. So here's how we'll define God's independence. God does not need us or anything else in creation for anything. Very simple. God does not need us or anything else in creation for anything. Now, there is an important balancing consideration here that the Scripture submits to us that, that, that we need to take into account. And, and it can be found in, in passages like Isaiah 62. That's not the only passage this is found, but this is just a, a really clear example. Isaiah 62, verses 3 through 5. You will be a glorious crown in the Lord's hand and a royal diadem in the palm of your God. You will no longer be called deserted, and your land will not be called desolate. Instead, you will be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land will be married. For just as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And just as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. The immediate context here is Isaiah prophesying about the restoration of God's people, Israel. But the implication of God delighting in his people, having joy in his obedient people, broadens out into the whole counsel of Scripture. Generally speaking, God delights in what he has made. He called his creation very good. Creation declares the glory of God. It's the purpose of it. But also, he loves his image bearers. He delights in his people. Just because God doesn't have needs from creation, that doesn't mean he doesn't have joy in creation. It doesn't mean he, he does not delight in what he has made. I mean, I think the amazing implication here is, is that the, the self-existent creator God who does not need us for a thing still loves and delights in his obedient people loved us enough to send the Lord Jesus Christ to save sinners who contribute absolutely nothing to him. I think that's a great God that deserves our reverence and our, our worship. So God is independent while we are dependent on him. Next, God is unchangeable. The next mountain peak, incommunicable attribute is that God is unchangeable. Changeable. Turn to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. God is unchangeable. This is also often called God's immutability. God's immutability. 
I still hear pages turning, so I'll wait another five seconds. Psalm 102, starting in verse 25. Long ago you established the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. All of them will wear out like clothing. You will change them like a garment, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years will never end. So God existed before the heavens and the earth were made, and he'll exist long after they're gone. God causes the universe to experience change. It changes it like a a piece of clothing, but in contrast with this change, he is the same, the Bible says. He doesn't grow old. He does not wear out. He does not perish. He remains the same. He doesn't get arthritis. He doesn't, sadly, get dementia like some of us do. He stays the same in his being. This is talking about God's being, Psalm 102. His being never changes. Scripture also speaks about God's character not changing. Malachi 3, verse 6. I love this passage, too. Malachi 3, 6. Because I, Yahweh, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Malachi clearly is speaking here of God's patience and his long-suffering and his mercy towards his people. His character does not change. You better be thankful I don't change people of Israel because you would have been obliterated a long time ago, as the prophet says. You know, it's, it's such a good thing for us that God's character doesn't change, isn't it? I mean, if his character changed, we'd be doomed. We'd be doomed. Or at the, at, at the very best, we'd be unstable because we wouldn't know what God's going to be like tomorrow. I mean, God's not like a toddler that's, you know, sweet and quiet and eats their snack nicely one day and then terrorizes the house and everyone in it the next day. God doesn't change from one day to the next. So God God is unchanging in his being and in his character. He's also unchanging in his purposes and promises. He is unchanging in what he has set out to do. Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Likewise, in Isaiah 46, 10 through 11. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, My plan will take place, and I will do all my will. I call a bird of prey from the east. A man for my purpose from a far country? Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it to to pass. I have planned it. I will do it. We're kind of bleeding over into the sovereignty of God here. I'll save that for Michael when he returns. But for now, God's purposes and his promises do not change. What he has set out to accomplish does not change. What he has said stands forever. It continues from generation to generation. The truth that I read from Scripture today is the same truth that my grandfather read and his grandfather before him read. The grass withers, the the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever, right? He does not go back on what he said. He does not go back on his promises. Right now we're trying to teach our toddler to let her yes be yes and her no be no. Scripture tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. You know why we're told to do that? 
Because we have a God whose yes is yes and whose no is no. What he has said does not change. He is not fickle like we are. And what a great truth that is for us who are fickle. God is not swayed in what he has decreed. He's not like a skinny palm tree that bends with the, when a hard wind comes in. No, he's a stalwart boulder. His plans will come to pass. He will bring it about. He will do it, Isaiah 46 says. He decrees that a bird flies into this auditorium, then a bird's flying into this auditorium. Hopefully not while we're in here. Wouldn't that be a sight for sore eyes? He is unchanging in his promises and in his purposes. Nothing sways the will of God. So, so here's how we will define this attribute. God is unchanging and unable to be changed in his being, his character, his promises, and his purposes. God is unchanging and unable to be changed in his being, his character, his promises, and his purposes. We're going to keep going. I've got ten more minutes, so we're going to keep trucking through. So nothing changes God. Nothing sways him. No hard things come in and blow him over like a tree, including time. An important part of this attribute, God being unchanged, is that God is eternal. He is eternal. Time doesn't have any effect on his being, his character, his purposes, or his promises. He is the same today as he was yesterday as he will be tomorrow. And sometimes we, we can pull this out into its own attribute, and it's, it's fine to do that. Sometimes it's referred to as the doctrine of God's infinity or his eternality. He's eternal. God is eternal. God is not limited by time. He's not constrained by it. And part of God not changing is that he does not end and that he does not begin. There's no change in God's God's being with time. You know those cartoon depictions of God as like an old grandfather with this long beard and maybe like a staff? Like, that's just so bad. I mean, that's, God's not an old man. (laughs) This is the living God. He's not affected by time. He doesn't grow old like that. He's not limited. Turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. should be just a few pages. I think we're just in Psalm 102. Psalm 90. The main observation that I want to glean uh, from this is that God's not affected by time. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, You are God. So scripture specifically attests to the fact that God is eternal. No beginning, no end, from eternity past to eternity future. God is fixed. He is a stalwart who does not change over the course of a long period of time passing. Revelation 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The one who is, who was, and who is coming. The Almighty. I mean, you know this is the Greek alphabet on illustration here. This is a title given to the Lord. Alpha is like our letter A. Omega is like our letter Z. The first letter and the last letter. He is the first one and the last one. He is the beginning, and he is the one who is going to come again at the end. Exodus 3, verse 14, a passage we've already looked at. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. That title is meant to convey something to us. 
The one who eternally exists and one who is unchanged by the passage of time. God is not changed. I am who I am. God's not changed specifically by time in his being, in his character, in his purposes, and in his promises. He does not forget who he is. He does not forget what he said. Just like Peter says, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The context of that statement is really, really encouraging for Christians. Jesus has not forgotten that he said he's going to come again. He's very patient with sinners, and he's waiting for repentance. A thousand years is like one day. What a great context for that statement, for repentance. He's unchanged by the passage of time. He's unaffected. And, and there are those that, that can classify this, this attribute as communicable. This is a part of himself that he allows us to share. And, the, and, and that's because of passages like, like Revelation 22, verse 5. Night will no longer exist, and people will not need lamplight or sunlight, because the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a great truth that is, just, just as a pause. I mean, that's just a great truth. Believers will reign forever and ever with the Lord. The guarantee of glorification is an amazing and incredible reality that we ought to look forward to. So I suppose you could say this is in a way communicable, but I I prefer to keep it incommunicable, to keep this separate, us separate from God in this way, because we are just not unchanged by time. We are completely changed by time. Us men will grow long gray beards one day. Some of you already have them. We will go back on our promises as time passes. We make a promise one day, a few years pass, and it's like, ah, you know, whatever. That was two years ago. It doesn't matter anymore. That isn't the Lord. He is completely unchanged, including by time. What a great Great truth. Now, I think there's a a practical question that we should ask at this point. And the question is this. Does God change his mind? Does he change his thinking on things? We've seen clearly in Scripture that he doesn't change in his being, in in his character, in his promises and purposes. He doesn't change what he has set out to do, but does he change his thinking? Does he change his mind? There is error that has resurged in, in, in recent years, and it's not new. It's old and recycled, but it's, it's kind of resurged with a new fun name. It's, it's called open theology or open theism. Maybe you've heard of it. And open theology states essentially that God is all-knowing, but he chooses not to know what people are going to do. And so his plans and promises are not set in stone. He could say one thing, and then humans react in one way, and then he does something else. That's open open theology, open theism. God may make a promise, but he chooses to restrict his knowledge, and the practical outflow of that is that God, God kind of vacillates in what he does and from what he originally said. Now, this clearly is error in regard to God's omniscience. He's, he's all-knowing, which, which we'll look at next week. But I think, really more significantly, this is extreme error regarding God's immutability, that he does not change. 
It, it teaches that, that all of God's plans, all of God's plans, are conditional upon our actions. If we pray in a certain way, or with enough passion, or a certain number of times, or behave in a certain way, or don't behave in a certain way, then we can change God's mind. We can change God's plans and his, and, and his decrees because he doesn't know what we will do in response to him, so he has to respond to us because he doesn't know what we're going to do. This just gives man influence over God. It, it makes God subordinate to man. It, it gives man influence over the plans and promises of God. Now, I would love to go through every proof text for this and completely deconstruct this for us. I would love to do that, but we don't have time for that. What we've seen in Scripture already is that God just simply is not subordinated to us. God doesn't need us in order to make decisions. God's mind doesn't change because we do or don't do something. So I'll just share one plain Scripture with you, and that's Numbers 23. Turn to Numbers 23. I think we'll, uh, we'll end with this. Numbers 23. And verse 19. Numbers 23, 19. Scripture says, God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? The sovereignty of God is not fickle. It's not fickle. We have a God who simply does not change. And that is a great thing for us who do change. I don't want influence over God's decrees. Do you? That's a dangerous place to be. No matter what happens in your life, one thing will not ever change. One thing will never be altered. God, his truth, his promises, including those related to your salvation, will never change. Your life can go through chaos. But we have a God who is the same yesterday as he is right now, as he will be tomorrow. We can rest in the unmoving rock that is our God. I think we have to stop. We don't have enough time to do the next one. And I don't want to get moving and we have to cut off in the middle of it. So we're going we're gonna to stop here. Next week, uh, we will conclude the incommunicable attributes of God. And um, somehow, we will cover all of God's communicable attributes as well. So it should be fun. So hope to see you next week. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're very thankful for um, the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We're, we're not left to guess and wonder who you are. Lord, what a great truth it is that you are independent, that you need nothing from us. You're totally self-existent. Lord, we are completely dependent upon you. We are weak and feeble, and we need you to sustain us, and we ask that you would do that in these difficult days. Lord, you are unchangeable. With all of these changing circumstances in our world today, Lord, we need, need you as our rock.
I pray that we would anchor ourselves on your promises, on your truth that does not ever change. I pray that you'd be with us, uh, go with us as we leave this place, and I pray that your, your will would be done. In Christ's name, amen.